Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2013. Titled Origins, this podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 6, February 2-8, Creation and the Fall. Sabbath afternoon, February 2 Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, at the time of creation, everything was wonderful. The relationship between man and woman and you was perfect. But there was a problem. And as we study about that this week, we pray that we may see your grace, your kindness, and and how well you treated those people, Adam and Eve, and how you've treated us since then. We pray that your word may spring open to us through the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's read that again. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. A comic used to play a female character called Geraldine. In one monologue, she was a minister's wife who had come home with an expensive new dress. Her husband, played by the same comedian, got angry. Geraldine then shrieked in response, The devil made me buy this dress. I didn't want to buy the dress. The devil kept bothering me. That was supposed to be funny, but our world and the evil in it shows that Satan is no laughing matter. For some people, the idea of the devil is an ancient superstition not to be taken seriously. Scripture, however, is unequivocal. Though Satan is a defeated foe, as expressed in Revelation 12.12 and 1 John 3.8, he is here on the earth, and he is determined to wreak as much havoc and destruction as possible against God's creation. This week, we'll look at Satan's original attack and what we can learn from it, so that while we are still under his assault, we can claim the victory that's ours in Christ. Sunday, February 3. The serpent was more cunning. Question. Read Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. How is Satan in the form of a serpent described? How is the truth of that depiction revealed even in that one verse? Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The cunning of the serpent is seen in the way he introduces his temptation. He does not make a direct attack, but attempts to engage the woman in conversation. Note that the serpent's words include at least two problematic aspects. First, he asks if God really made a particular statement. At the same time, he phrases his question to raise doubt about the generosity of God. 
In effect, he asks, Did God really withhold anything from you? Did he not give you permission to eat from every tree in the garden? By intentionally misquoting God's instructions, the serpent entices the woman to correct his statement and successfully draws her into conversation. The serpent's strategy is certainly cunning. Of course, none of that should be surprising. Jesus called the devil a liar and the father of lies in John 8.44. In Revelation 12.9, the devil deceives the whole world, which means that none of us, even as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, are safe. Satan has, obviously, lost none of his cunning or deceptiveness. He still uses the strategy that was successful with Eve. He raises questions about God's word and God's intentions, hoping to raise doubts and draw us into conversation. We must be vigilant, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, in order to resist his devices. Question. Compare Matthew 4, verses 3 to 10, with Genesis 3, verse 1. What similar ploy did Satan try on Jesus, and why did it fail? What attacks can we learn from how Jesus responded to the devil's attacks in the wilderness? In what ways does Satan try the same thing with us now? Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And we'll go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 and have another look there, just to see how that compares with what Eve perhaps should have done. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Monday, February 4, The Woman and the Serpent Question. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. How did the woman respond to the serpent? What mistakes did she make? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Though Eve clearly knew the command of God, which shows her culpability, she does make a statement that goes beyond what God had said, at least as recorded in the Bible. God had clearly instructed Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree. Nothing was said about not touching it. Because we don't know what prompted her to say that, it's best not to speculate about its origins. No question, though, by thinking she shouldn't touch the fruit, she would have been less inclined to eat it, because she couldn't eat what she couldn't touch. How often do we face the same thing today? Someone comes with teachings that on most points, but not all, are in harmony with Scripture. It's the few points that aren't that can ruin everything else. Even mixed with truth, error is still error. Question. Read Matthew, chapter 15, verses 7 to 9. What reproof did Jesus give the scribes and Pharisees concerning the addition of human thinking to the word of God? Compare this with Revelation 22.18 and Colossians 2.20-23. What dangers arise from making up rules that we think will protect us against sin? Particularly verse 23. Well, we'll start with Matthew 15 verses 7-9. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we'll compare that with Revelation chapter 22 and verses, just verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And we'll compare that too with Colossians Chapter 2 and verses 20 to 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The problem with sin is not a lack of rules, but a reprobate heart. Even in secular society, we often hear calls for more laws against crime when there are already sufficient laws in existence. We do not need new laws so much as we need new hearts. So to finish today, in what ways might we be in danger of following the things warned about here? Standards based on biblical principles are crucial. The question is, how can we be sure that the standards and rules we apply aren't going to lead us astray? Bring your answer to class. Tuesday, February 5, Deceived by the Evidence Question. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. What are the principles that led to Adam and Eve's downfall? 
What can we learn from their experience that can help us to deal with whatever temptations we face as well? Beginning at verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Satan was successful in drawing Eve into conversation and in raising doubts about what God had said and why. Now he tells Eve that God is not telling the truth and provides an explanation for God's motive behind his forbidding them to eat of the fruit. According to Satan, God is withholding something good in order to keep Adam and Eve from reaching their full potential. In doing so, Satan builds on his previous question about whether God has withheld some of the trees from them. Eve uses three lines of evidence that lead her to the conclusion that she would benefit from eating the fruit. First, she sees that the tree is good for food. Perhaps she has observed the serpent eating the fruit. He may have commented on how good it tasted. It's interesting that, though Adam and Eve had been told not to eat of it, she notices that it is good for food. Talk about a conflict between the senses and a clear, thus says the Lord. A second line of evidence that convinces Eve to eat the fruit is that it is pleasant to the eyes. No doubt all the fruit in the garden is beautiful, but for some reason Eve is especially attracted to the fruit that Satan is offering her. The supposed power of the fruit to make one wise is a third reason that Eve wants to eat of the fruit. The serpent has assured her that eating the fruit will expand her knowledge and make her like God. Of course, the sad irony here is that, according to the Bible, she already is like God. Genesis 1.27 We are told that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not in 1 Timothy 2.14. If Adam was not deceived, why did he eat? Adam consciously disobeyed God, choosing to follow Eve rather than God. How often is this same kind of behaviour seen today? How easily we can be tempted by what others say and do, regardless of how contrary their words and actions are to the word of God. Adam listened to Eve instead of to God. And the rest is the nightmare known as human history. See Romans chapter Five verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence. For if by the one man's offence many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offence resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. 
For if by the one man's offence death reign through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wednesday, February 6, Grace and Judgment in Eden, Part 1 In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, the Lord's opening words are all questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What is this you have done? They all come from Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. Question. In contrast... God's first declarative statement in chapter 3, his first statement of fact, follows these questions. What does God say to the serpent, and what is the meaning of his words? Genesis three fourteen and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Think through the implications of what is happening here. God's first declarative statement to the fallen world is, in fact, a condemnation of Satan, not humanity. Indeed, even in that condemnation of Satan, God gives humanity the hope and promise of the gospel in verse 15. As he declares Satan's doom, he proclaims humanity's hope. Despite their sin, the Lord immediately reveals to Adam and Eve the promise of redemption. Notice too that only after this promise, only after hope of grace and salvation is given in verse 15, known also as the first gospel promise, does the Lord pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife... That's quoted from Genesis three sixteen and 17. Verse 17 reads, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Don't miss this point. The promise of salvation comes first, followed by judgment. 
Only against the backdrop of the gospel, then, does judgment come. Otherwise, judgment would mean nothing but condemnation. But scripture is clear. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So to finish today, why is it so important always to dwell on the fact that God's purpose is to save us, not to condemn us? How does sin in our life cause us to lose sight of that crucial truth? That is, how does sin cause us to turn away from God? Thursday, February 7, Grace and Judgment in Eden, Part 2 In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God utters imperative statements such as Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. It's not good for man to be alone. All these declarations deal with creation and with establishing humanity in that creation. As we saw yesterday, the next declarative statement recorded in the Bible occurs in Genesis three fourteen and 15, in which the Lord offers humanity the gospel. Thus, in Scripture, God's initial statements deal with creation and then with redemption, and this redemption occurs in the context of judgment itself. It would have to. After all, what's the purpose of the gospel? What's the good news if there were no judgment, no condemnation from which to be spared? The very concept of the gospel carries within itself the concept of condemnation, a condemnation that we don't have to face. That's the good news. Though we have violated God's law, and though God will judge those violations... In Christ Jesus, we are spared the condemnation that this judgment would inevitably bring. Question. Creation, gospel and judgment appear not only in the early pages of the Bible, but in the latter as well. Read Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. In what ways are these verses linked to the first three chapters of Genesis? That is, what Parallel ideas are found in all these verses. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of waters. In Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, we see a declaration of God as the Creator, a key theme in the opening passages of Genesis. In Revelation 14, however, the everlasting gospel comes first, and then is followed by the announcement of judgment, as in Genesis 3. Judgment is there, but not before the gospel. Thus, the foundation of our present truth message has to be grace, the good news that, though we deserve condemnation, we can stand pardoned, purified, and justified through Jesus. Without the gospel, our destiny would be the same as the serpent's and his seed, not the destiny of the woman and her seed. 
And fascinatingly enough, this great news appears even in Eden in God's first words to a fallen world. Friday, February 8. From the book Councils for the Church, page 228, we read, God gave our first parents the food he designed that the race should eat. It was contrary to his plan to have the life of any creature taken. There was to be no death in Eden. And from Desire of Ages, page 24. Satan represents God's law of love as a law of selfishness. He declares that it is impossible for us to obey its precepts. The fall of our first parents, with all the woe that has resulted, he charges upon the Creator, leading men to look upon God as the author of sin and suffering and death. Jesus was to unveil this deception. And then, from the book Education, page 27. But man was not abandoned to the results of the evil he had chosen. In the sentence pronounced upon Satan was given an intimation of redemption. This sentence, spoken in the hearing of our first parents, was to them a promise. Before they heard of the thorn and the thistle, of the toil and the sorrow that must be their portion, or of the dust to which they must return, they listened to words that could not fail of giving them hope. All that had been lost by yielding to Satan could be regained through Christ. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. One. In class, go over your answers to Monday's final question. What kind of rules do we make that could turn us into the very people Jesus condemned? At the same time, how can we make commitments that might help us better to follow the principles of truth as revealed in the Bible? 2. Eve trusted her senses instead of a very clear command from God. How do we find it so easy to do the same thing? 3. Dwell on the obvious contrast between the creation story and the various evolutionary ideas that depict natural evil as being part of God's original creative process. Why is it impossible to harmonize such conflicting views of our origins without ultimately destroying the plain meaning of the Bible? Why is a correct understanding of creation important in order to gain a correct understanding of the fall? 4. Some cultures find the idea of a literal devil nothing but foolishness. Others, in contrast, can be obsessed with the power of evil and evil spirits. What about your culture? What's the tendency, and how can you learn to strike the right balance when dealing with the reality of the supernatural battles in which we find ourselves? Inside Story. Our mission story for this week is titled Kayaks on a Mission, and it's written by Peuter Stachkowski, who is secretary of the South Polish Conference. They're off. 
31 kayakers wearing life jackets, hats and eager smiles embarked on a five-day mission adventure down the Rosputra River in Poland. Their colourful kayaks were crammed with sleeping bags, tents, clothes and food, and their most important cargo, magazines and books to share with people they would meet along their route. Their goal was to bring the people hope found only in Jesus. When the kayakers came to a village, they docked their boats and set out to visit every home, praying with people and offering them literature about Jesus. Along their route, they shared 3,500 copies of the newspaper edition of The Signs of the Times and sold hundreds of books, including Messiah and The Great Controversy on CD. And they even met people who remembered buying books from them on a previous trip down the river. It's wonderful to hear that people have read our books and received a blessing, says Portis Tatursky, church pastor and kayaker. This was the fourth kayak mission trip for members of a Seventh-day Adventist church near Warsaw and some of their friends. This time, almost half the group was young, between the ages of 7 and 15. It's great to see our young people eager to become involved in missions, says the pastor. They learn from the adults how to share Jesus' love, and their enthusiasm encourages the rest of us. The 41-mile or 60-kilometre river trip took kayakers through pristine forests and marshy meadows. Paddling about 11 miles a day, the team made plenty of time for outreach and Christian fellowship. At time, they gathered around a campfire to worship God and pray for the people they had met that day. The Seventh-day Adventist church in Poland is small, with about 5,700 members. That's one Seventh-day Adventist for every 6,600 people. The work is difficult in Poland, says Pastor Roszkowski, Global Mission Director for the Polish Union Conference. Poles want to catch up with Western Europe, often working two jobs. They have little time to read the Bible. For many of the villagers, the mission team members were the first Seventh-day Adventists they had ever met. The trip was funded in part by the mission offerings you give each week in Sabbath school. Our church is so thankful for the opportunity to share the hope we have in Jesus, says the pastor. We know people are reading the material we've given them, and some have requested Bible studies. It's my hope that our kayak mission story will help you know that your support of mission is making an incredible difference in people's lives. This podcast of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, the Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful.